Why don't you turn to Ephesians 6, 9, please. Ephesians 6, 9, the message is entitled, God's Role for Masters. Paul continues to deal with the last group included as part of the household and the family in Paul's days, that of servants and master relationship. But he's addressing those who are believers, not non-believers. The running principle is authority and submission that began with the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. And once you're filled with the Spirit of God, then you're able to submit and to exercise authority properly. The family will work. Employee, employer will work. All else will work. But if we attempt to do it in our own mights, our own abilities, we will fail every time. We have looked at the role of the servants, bond servants there, the old King James says slaves, towards their masters, and it was categorized by three things in 5 through 8, the command of obedience, the manner of obedience, and the reason for obedience. Now, in principle, we made application to the responsible employees, their responsibility to their employers. And uh, often Christians complain about the job they have, and yet God has provided for them. I've done some pretty funky jobs in my life, but it put bread on the table, and I went to work. And sometimes we can um, think that somehow God wants to isolate us and just put us with Christians. No, he puts us in the world, but we're not of the world, so we can be a light. And now Paul gives us the role of masters to slaves. Um, again, applicable now, employers to employees in principle, and we'll make that application. So the text runs from 6, 5, all the way to 9. You have the parallel passage in the sister epistle, Colossians three twenty-two down to chapter 4, verse 1. And it's interesting that the amount of verses given to um, the slaves compared to the masters is the same, I believe three to one, uh, or even more than that. Um, one to the masters, um, and then the majority to those under authority. So let me read here, verse uh, nine. He says, and you masters, do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own Master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. The role for masters is characterized by the same three things that the bond servants were. The command of obedience, the manner of obedience, and the reason for obedience. Now, they're a little different, but the categories are the same. Let's begin here with the command of obedience. And you masters do the same thing to them. Now notice the Apostle Paul instructed the masters that were over the slaves in the household. Paul uses the same phrase as with the fathers and children relationship in verse 4. To the fathers he said, and you fathers, verse 4. Three verses to children, one verse to the father, emphatic, and you. Three verses to slaves, one to the masters, and you. 
to the masters, he now says, and you, emphatic, because they have the greater responsibility. They have the greater authority. This is a familiar phase in the scripture. Continue to remind us that there is no one-sided relationship, but there is always two sides to any relationship. Paul is addressing men who were Christian believers. Keep that context in mind. He's not addressing non-believing masters or non-believing slaves. They could never obey what he's saying. The unbeliever has no ability or capacity or desire to obey. In fact, they're dead in trespasses and sins, as chapter 2, verse 1 says. Stop and think about the life you're living in Christ right now and you've lived for years. You couldn't live that life before you were born again. It's impossible. You didn't even desire it. People that did, you say, what, are you crazy? Hmm. Notice the Apostle Paul indicated by the same use of the title masters, the ones having authority over these slaves. The entire section of the family falls under the subject of authority and submission, as I said earlier. Every believer is to submit to one another in the fear and authority of God in chapter 5, verse 21. That's how it begins. Individually, each of us as Christians, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives submit to their own husbands as the authority and the head of the home, chapter 5, verse 22 to 24. Husbands are to submit to the authority of God and love their wives in Ephesians 5. 25 through 33. Children, to submit to their parents, 6, 1 through 4. Servants, to submit to the authority of their own masters, 5 through 8 in chapter 6 here. Masters are to submit to the authority of God, to be just to their slaves. Everybody submits to somebody. We wear different hats in life at different times the very same day. The title master's curios indicates the one a thing or a person belongs to. And having the authority to decide about them as they will. It is used of an owner of the colt borrowed for Jesus in Luke 19.33. It's used of a master who, to whom service um, is, is due. As here in 6.5. It's used as an emperor or king like Augustus in the book of Acts 25.26. It's used of idols in 1 Corinthians 8.5. It is used as a title of respect to a father, a husband, a master, a ruler, an angel. Matthew 21.30. 1 Peter 3.8.6. Matthew 13, 27, and Luke 13, 8. The word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings, whenever you read critical commentaries, they'll give you the Roman numeral LXX, 50, 10, 10, Septuagint, 70. And it's used in the Septuagint and New Testament representative of the Hebrew equivalent Adonai. Lord, one who bears respect. I've shared with you before, 
in Latin American countries, uh, Mexico, Central South America, a son would say to his father, Señor, Sir, Lord, a form of respect. The context will determine its meaning. Now notice the perspective of the days of Paul was one of absolute control, even unto death. We talked about that when we looked at the bond servants. There were Christian men, as we pointed out, that were not to be like the world because they had come out of the world. So he's addressing them. They, as masters, having the greater authority, had the greater responsibility to God. They, as Paul will tell them, were under Jesus, their master in heaven. The natural sinful bent is to always believe that I am in control or that I have all the authority. But the truth of the matter is, there's always somebody over you, just like there's someone under you. Be it at work, be it at home, be it wherever it is. Different points in life. Notice the Apostle Paul gave one command to these Christian masters. Paul instructed them with a broad, general command. Do the same things to them. He said slaves were to be obedient to their masters according to the flesh in verse 5. All the way down to verse 6, not with eye service, on and so forth. Were the Christian masters to obey their slaves in the same way as verse 5 and 6? Is this what Paul is intending? No, of course not. Can't be. Follow the train of thought. The general command has to do with the attitude and perspective to bring about right conduct and actions. Look at verse 7 and 8. The command is... A present active tense to be ongoing. It's six. It's verse seven and eight. This was based on their new birth, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord, not to men. Now they're they're the, they're the masters. So when you're the master, you think, well, I don't have to do that, right? Especially to you, you peon. Right? That's the natural bent. Delighting in doing God's will. Goodwill means benevolence and kindness. As their duty in a position of power. As to the Lord Jesus. That's how it's done. And not simply as unto men. Of insignificance or significance. Certainly the bent is to have partiality. We'll see that at the end. That's always very dangerous. We look at somebody and we say, Pfft. we look at others and say, oh, can I do something for you? My eye has perceived them differently. Look at eight. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord Jesus, whether he is slave or free. Now, they were under new management, these masters. They're Christians. They're under the management of Jesus Christ. 
Now they had a greater accountability and responsibility regarding their power and authority. Power and authority is given to you and I to use for others, not for ourselves. Men without Christ use power for themselves. Just look at politicians. Simple. End the conversation. The law was very clear on the just treatment of slaves by their masters. Listen to Leviticus 19.13. It says, You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until the morning. So, when a person went to work for you, you paid him at the end of the day. You didn't say, Well, I'll pay you tomorrow. No, no, no. He, he's working that day to eat. And um, you also find in Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15. Also, in uh, Leviticus 25, 39 through 43, it says, And if one of your brethren who dwells with you becomes poor and sells himself to you, um, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a higher servant or a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is the 50th year, so whatever years were left, he would serve that way. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possessions of his father, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. The whole aspect of the, of the nation of Israel was that they were a theocracy. They were living before God and they know that God would get them. But even under that type of understanding, people still attempted to get away with things. But when you have a society that doesn't believe in God, then there's no restraint at all. Amos 5.11, you remember as we looked at Amos, it says, Therefore, because you tread down the poor... And take away taxes from him. Though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. So all this power to rob from the poor, to extract taxes and build your luxurious homes and do that. You're going to have it, but you're not going to enjoy it. Judgment was coming. Amos 8, 4 through 6 says, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain in the Sabbath, that we may tread wheat or trade wheat, making the ephod small? In other words, you have two ways, making the ephod small and the shekel large. You have a light weight to buy and a heavy weight to sell. They both say 10 pounds. All right? So you're burning the guy when you're buying, and you're burning the guy when you're selling. Greed. Falsifying the, the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver, listen, and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. These are masters. These are people with authority and means and abilities. In the early house church, you could have a master and a slave in the same congregation. And maybe the master is a deacon and the slave just attends, or the reverse. Or maybe the slave was an elder and the master just sat. 
quite different, revolutionary. The fact that in our modern day world there are no Christians who have slaves. We can apply the principle to employers towards employees. The employer has the greater advantage over the employee as um, the one who is in control. While the employee functions under limited control. The employer can be a blessing to the employee or a destructive force. Proverbs 29, 2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. We have all worked for people that are not very just and fair, dishonest and greedy, tight watts. Power and authority is given by God to each person who is an employer to do good with goodwill doing service to the Lord. We're talking about Christians. If you're a Christian and you own your business and you employ people, God holds you responsible for them, how you deal with them. He's giving you that business, that authority to be just and good and kind. That doesn't mean you become permissive to where people can be laid and rip you off. No, no, no. But you have a great responsibility. Power is something that is um, difficult to handle, as you know. Power can and has and will destroy even Christians and ministers. How many ministers have been destroyed in ministry because of the power and authority and money? As an employer, one has the power to keep a man on or to let him go. Now, if you let him go because you can't provide the finances for him, the business is low. There's nothing wrong with that. How you handle that, whether you give them a heads up or just drop them like a bad habit, will make a difference, right? So you need to consider others before yourself. Power can be used um, for good or abused. Colossians 4.1 says, Masters, give your servants what is just and fair. Now, the Bible is not sharing spread the wealth. The Bible is saying, work and pay them accordingly. Hard work and the adequate pay according to the job you're doing and your abilities. Okay? You don't pay them all the same. People have different talents, different abilities, different education, and that's just the way it is. As an employer, my conduct on how I handle and deal with my employees will communicate to them who I am, how I view them, and what it is that I believe. Do I seek to know all information before dealing with a person or people? Or do I just um, act on the first information? Am I open to the employee's side, or is my mind already made up? Do I exemplify mercy, or is it always law, what people deserve? Matthew seven twelve says, Therefore, whatever you want 
men to do to you. Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Wow. The command of obedience to the masters was to those in Christ. Second comes the manner of obedience. It's short. Giving up threatening. That's all it said to them. The Apostle Paul expressed the usual practice of the day regarding masters towards their slaves. This is the negative. Giving up threatening. Paul was too familiar with the unjust practices of masters towards their slaves. They just treated them bad for the most part. The use of force, violence, cruelty fell on many slaves by their masters. The slaves were motivated to work out of fear by the threats that were vocalized to them, even of putting them to death. Paul is implying that the believer, though saved, still has a sinful nature. If being a Christian makes you automatically good, you wouldn't have to study. You wouldn't have to be exhorted. You wouldn't have to be busted. We still have a sinful nature. That master must reckon that sinful nature dead daily. He must not yield to it when it presents itself. He must recognize Satan will attempt to entice him to walk in the flesh. To think of himself first. Notice Paul depicted the force of his command in the negative. Alinsky, the Greek scholar, helps us here. He says, note the force of the durative and of the punctiliar participle. Punctiliar means, boom, it stopped. It's at a point and, and it happens. Always refraining from. That's the literal translation. Always refraining from. You've made that decision, punctiliar. Boom. It's not going to change. The command was radical for the days of Paul. This was unheard of, revolutionary. In the mind of many non-believers, as they heard this kind of nonsense that Christians were teaching, Paul, that renegade rabbi, I'm sure they were thinking that this would disrupt the order of society and cause slaves to rebel. But they didn't. They complied. They worked harder. More honestly, because they did it unto the Lord. See, the difference is, do I really believe that I'm under the authority of Jesus Christ? then everything I do, I want to glorify him. Do I always do it? Nope. But that is to be my commitment, my understanding. We're not perfect, but it shouldn't be the rule. It should be the exception when we fail. The phrase giving up means to send back, to let up, to slacken, desert, or desist, appearing three other times in the New Testament. 
It is used when Paul and Silas were in jail and all the prisoners' chain were loose in Acts 16.26. Remember their chains fell off? It's used of the promise of God, I will never leave you, Hebrews 13.5. God never leaves us. We leave him. It's we who depart. The particular evil notice practice here of threatening, they were to seize and desist from threatening their slaves. The word threatening simply means to speak words of harm or loss in order to intimidate or motivate a person, in this case, slaves, to obey and work. Sometimes just the eye, right? Just make that eye contact, that's it. You remember being a kid? If your dad was a dad and you were in public and he told you to behave yourself and it kind of sounded like you weren't, he just looked over and you bet I, you knew exactly what he meant. You didn't have to say a word. You knew you were going to get it the minute you got home. In the Greek, the word threatening has the definite article which refers to a well-known habit of masters of threatening slaves. The threatening. This is the practice. This is the norm. The word appears three other times in the New Testament translated threatenings. It is used of the religious rulers to threaten Peter and John in Acts 4.17 for preaching the gospel. Don't do it. It's used of the disciples as they prayed regarding the threats in Acts 4.29. <laughs> it's used of Paul threatening or breathing out threats against the church in Acts 9.1. Kill Christians and imprison them, cause them to blaspheme. Notice the Apostle Paul is declaring the need to end the negative manner of their conduct of threatening their slaves. This implies the positive alternative, even though it's not stated. The opposite is a silent command, an understood command. Your parent looked at your mom and dad and says, don't do that. You knew exactly the opposite of what you were supposed to do, right? <laughs> Real simple. Paul is implying that masters treat their slaves as human beings created by God, like themselves. Now they're Christians. Each slave was created in the image and likeness of God. Slaves were not inferior to masters before God or even before each other. Slaves were not an object or a tool, as the Roman Empire declared. Each slave had a spirit to be redeemed, particularly if they were saved. But especially those who weren't saved. Their masters might not be, slave, be saved, or their, or their slave might not be saved. 
So they're examples to bring people to Christ. Each slave had worth in their person to be part of society, to be married and have children. Paul was implying that masters treat their slaves like those who were an asset to them. They were working on their behalf in their homes. They cared for their families. They uh, increased their worth and wealth. Paul was implying that masters treat their slaves as brothers in Christ. Both of them had been saved by grace through faith. Both had access to God at any time. Both were under the same authority before God. Both were to glorify God in all they did. Both were to love each other with God's agape love. How different it is from the world. (laughs) Paul was not teaching The master-slave relationship was dissolved when one or both became Christians. That's not what he's teaching. Paul in no way was attempting to reform or oppose slavery, as we said in our last study. Knowing that the result of 60 million slaves being freed in the Roman Empire at one time would result in their utter inability to provide and protect themselves, particularly women and children. Yet some slaves were set free at times by their masters. And as Christianity continued to advance, that number grew due to Christianity, the influence on society. You examine any country, any civilization, any culture where the gospel is gone and see what it was before as a pagan nation or culture in the practices, the injustices, the uncompassion, and then you see what happens when the gospel comes. Wow. The first to benefit are women and children. The very first. Paul emphasized the transformation of the believer to experience the power of the resurrection, to be witnesses for Christ. It is no different today, ladies and gentlemen. People don't want to hear the gospel. They want to see it. It's been said, be a witness. And if necessary, use words. Nothing else needs to be said. Paul the Apostle, as I said earlier, breathed threats and imprisonments and murdered Christians. But after his conversion... On the road to Damascus, he preached Jesus to be the Son of God. Acts 9, 1 and 2 and 20 and 21 says, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for this purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Isn't this the guy that, that, that killed believers? He came with letters and he's going to drag them back to Jerusalem and just make them recant. And, and I heard him the other day. He's 
He's saying Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What happened to this guy? Sunstroke? That's what people say about you. What happened to that guy? What happened to that girl? You see, we need to know each other here in church since we're Christians. But if we would have known each other in the world, it would have been a whole different picture. <laughs> Absolutely a whole different picture. And sometimes it's easy to forget because we live in a bubble sometimes a little bit. And we, um, we forget of the miracle of God in our lives. How powerful it is and what he's done. The Christian employers have the responsibility to provide a service to the public that is fair in price, good in quality, and standing behind the work. This will result in having a good reputation in the world business and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. The ethical integrity of a person or company is evident by the fact that they speak truth and not just say whatever is going to make the sale. The training and requiring of each employee to follow the ethical standard is vital because they are representing the name, the reputation of the employer or the company, and their witness of being a Christian. Proverbs 22, 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. The world is the reverse. And sometimes Christians get caught up in that. Let no one despise your youth. Be an example of the believer in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. 1 Timothy 4, 12. Now the Christian employer must guard against possible pitfalls that will mar their witness for Christ. Being a bad witness of Christ to the employers at work in your personal life. You say you're a Christian, but how do you talk? What do you talk about? How do you conduct yourself? What do they hear you say or do? Being tempted to do unethical and dishonest business transactions sometimes or paying someone under the table to avoid taxes. As a Christian businessman, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. If they charge you 90% tax, you pay it. If you don't like it, then go work for somebody. You still have to pay it. (laughs) Simple. Being distant, impersonal, unapproachable, and not listening to the employees. Being unaware of the environment and attitude of those doing the work of the company. Very important. Now, this does not mean you um, agree or even do what the employees might suggest but that you are interested in them in a company that provides for their families. You take this into consideration. You pray about it. You ask God for wisdom, direction. 
You let him direct and guide you. First Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from every form of evil. The Christian employer can, in certain ways, motivate employees to do their best and produce the most work. By treating them with respect and dignity, by paying them a fair and just wage for the work they do, by providing incentives to advance with education or performance, whichever, and by communicating their commitment to keep them working if they are good and faithful workers. You sow, you reap. Simple principle. By having an opportunity to witness to them about Christ, if they're not Christians, you never know. But it's not something that you impose upon them as your employees. In other words, you don't have authority to force them. You pray for them. You know you're a Christian. If they ask questions, you share with them, right? But you don't abuse that position. Where they say, well, i got to listen to him about his Jesus, otherwise he might fire me. You know what I mean? 1 Peter 4.14 says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed. But on your part, he's glorified. If you conduct yourself in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ, regardless of what they think and say, it doesn't matter. God understands your heart and God directs and guides you. The Christian employer is not to be unequally yoked in business with an unbeliever as a partner. This is very, very important. And Christians always, always neglect this. The unbeliever may agree at first to go along with all your Christian ethics. But there's no guarantee they will continue to agree as the business goes on and grows. The unbeliever may want to save some money by um, purchasing something cash without receipt. Pay somebody under the table to escape taxes, like I said earlier. And so the worldly partner is trying to make the most of what he has. And if he has to cut some corners, he has no problem with it. Well, if he's a partner of yours and you're a Christian, you're part of that. Your name's on that contract. The business is both of yours. So as a Christian owner, an employer, you can hire non-believers because you can bless them in the name of God. And you can be a witness to them. Sometimes you may have to fire the Christian more often than the non-believer. Because the Christian may feel entitled. Well, he's a bro, you know. We're both in Christ. And they slack off and really don't work. But you as a boss, you make all the decisions. You do not yoke up with a non-believer in your business. Because sooner or later, greed will get it and you have to divide it or you have to go to court. It's just that simple. I've seen it over and over and over again. Even men who are Godly men have compromises and they have paid the great price. 
2 Corinthians 6, 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship is righteousness with, unlawless, with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? None. None whatsoever. The manner of obedience by masters was due to their potential in Christ. Their potential. Notice third and last, you have the reason for obedience. The last part of nine, knowing that your own masters also in, in heaven and there is no partiality with him. The Apostle Paul declared the first reason the Christian masters were to treat their slaves with Christian justice and kindness is because they also are under authority. Paul brings it down to the common sense wisdom. Knowing means to perceive with the mind to understand something very, very clear. The word is a participle, perfect, active, that we are told in the Greek. The idea is to know completely and always aware of that truth. You know that you know. You teach your kids, they know that they know. And then they go do some kind, you say, what, what were you thinking? Or your son is, you know. But in spite of knowing, we can transgress it, right? That sin nature is there. Paul stated clearly that they now as Christians understood that they had their own master in heaven as masters on earth. They would have to give an account of how they treated their slaves. They would be judged according to the measure of light they had received. If they were merciful, God would be merciful. If they were stern and unkind, God would be rewarding them accordingly. They had come to know Jesus as their master, Kurios, the one who owned them and had all authority over them. You see, Paul knew that nothing helps a man to temper his power and how he uses it more than being under authority. Remember Jesus told centurion? Remember the slave? My, my servant is dying. He said, oh, no, you don't have to come to my house. I'm, I'm a man under authority, too. And I, I have men under authority of me. And I say, go, and they go, and they come. Wow. <laughs> Joseph, to his brothers in Egypt, after he tested the hearts of his brothers, then he used his power and authority to bless them. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Wow. Colossians says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Colossians 4, 1, the second part of verse 1. Notice Paul the Apostle declared the second reason for Christian masters. That they were to treat their slaves with Christian justice and kindness. Because God does not favor anyone. No one at all. Paul says, and there is no partiality with him. The word partiality means a respect of persons, to respect someone's faith, the idea of being, they impress you, they influence you by one's person over the other so as to violate perfect justice. This does not happen with God. 
It doesn't violate his perfect justice or his holiness. Both are in the same position before God, whether he is slave or free, verse 8 said. Paul knew God does not see as a man. God is not impressed with looks. God doesn't pay attention to a person who is beautiful more than a person who is not so good looking. It doesn't matter to him. Now you and I, we get checked on that. They did a little thing one time and they dressed this beautiful girl with makeup, like looked like an old woman, put her out in the street to see who would help her and how men would respond to her. Wow. And then they took all the garb off and that stone fox just walked down the street. And my Lord, did she get help from everybody? Hmm. God's not impressed with money. He's not impressed with education, with affluence, with people, their position, their power, their authority. He's not impressed with accomplishments. God isn't up there to the angel saying, wow, this guy has it together. Gabe. <laughs> the scriptures are clear on this principle. Man is not to respect the poor just because they're poor. In his disputes, Exodus 23.3, Leviticus 19.15. So you're not to favor the poor just because they're poor. Man is not to respect any person in judgment, small or great, Deuteronomy 1.17. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eye of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Deuteronomy 16, 19. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. First Samuel 16, 7. That's when he sent Samuel to go anoint. David. And all his brothers were just handsome, tall and all that. Now, 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 go get that red-headed guy, freckle-faced, snotty kid. He's the one. Wow. To show partiality is not good because for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. Proverbs 28, 21 says. You remember the house of Cornelius? Acts 10, 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said... Uh, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He is accepting the Gentile as he did the Jew. You know how monumental that proclamation was? Peter knew how severe that statement was. That's why he took some Jews with him back to Jerusalem because he knew he was going to get it. He not only he went into a Gentile's house and now they're part of the church. What is your problem? Well, there is no partiality with God between Jew and Gentile. Romans 2.11, Colossians 3.25. Paul's confidence in Philemon, remember we mentioned him last week. To conduct himself in such manner is recorded for us. Philippians 12, 16, 17, and 21. Listen, no longer as a slave, Paul is writing to Philemon to accept the runaway Onesimus had been saved. 
No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Wow. Now, you're still the slave, still to respect, still to work. Then take advantage of that. But now they're both in Christ. Wow. As a Christian and employer, I need to recognize that I have a master in heaven and I must draw from how he deals with me to impart to others. He's loving, he's merciful, he's just. He never is partial towards me or others, but holds me responsible in my position. Neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, regarding salvation, no distinction, none at all. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is in the world, so are we in this world. First John four, seventeen. Let me give you a better abuse of this partiality, abuse of it. Pastors. As they look upon the people, a bunch of peons. Wow. We were just grabbing a bite upstairs and Steve, you know, Steve with long ponytail and all that. And we were talking up there and my wife Trudy and I said, you know, God has just given us such great people in this church. I love the people of this church. Because they come, they grow, they get involved, they're doers. Man, when anything is up, like vacation Bible, man, they're here working hard. The ushers, everything. I mean, God has just blessed us. And to think that because I'm a pastor, I'm better than you or that you're my little servants. What a, what a sham. So grateful for all you people that come. And you guys have heard me more than you should. <laughs> And I see what God does through you, and it's just uh, what a joy it is, what a privilege it is to serve here for 36 years. It's an amazing thing. Amazing thing. The pastor should be the biggest servant of all. He's to be the example. Now, he's a man like anybody else, but the day that he thinks that, you know, everybody's here to serve me, and, you know, everybody's got to buy me a present, everybody's got to do whatever. You know how many pastors are like that? A lot. Trust me, I've been around 42 years. The angels must throw up as well as God. The scriptures have much to say about our potential to show favoritism by a Christian or employer. 1 Timothy 5.21 says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. James 2.1 Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James 
But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, James 2.9. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, James 3.17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each other's each works, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. 1 Peter 1.17 Every believer is responsible to be submitting to one another in the fear of God. Ephesians 5.21 Some pastors won't even answer the phone if they walk by and it was ringing. One time I picked them and they go, Hello, is the cover? Yeah, I don't know. He says, Who's this? I said, this is Xavier. He says, what are you doing picking up the phone? I said, well, I was walking by in the rain. <laughs> what are you supposed to do? It goes to show you that there's a bad example up there in the world, in the Christian community. They drive around in their big cars and fancy clothes and the big crusades and untouchables, right? Wow. Can I touch you? Can I touch you? The reason for um, obedience by masters was due to also having a master in heaven. Can't get any simpler than that. Just the way it is. God help us that um, we would um, get to a place and come to a point where we just think that, you know, I'm just God's gift to this world. And um, you really need to serve me. God help us. Jesus said, I am one among you who serves, yet I am your Lord. God emptied himself of his glory, divested himself of his throne, took on flesh, and he came down to wash feet and to die for the sins of the world. Wow. God's role for the masters is characterized by the command of obedience. It was those in Christ. The manner of obedience was due to their Potential in Christ. And the reason for obedience by masters was due to also having a master. Christ. Wow. Good stuff. <laughs> Five little chapters, man. Now the sixth. Now we're going to get into warfare. The, the, where we live. There is no peace here until the Jesus Christ comes. <laughs> okay? There's no utopia. There's no paradise. But there is an ability to enjoy life like we never did before because of Him. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for tonight. 
And Father, I pray and I thank you for every person here tonight. And I thank you for just the people that you bring on Sunday and how good you are. And Lord, what example they are to me and all that they do and say, Lord, and as they conduct themselves here. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. He loves you. But he cannot bless you with his love until you agree with him that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Maybe you're listening over the radio. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then God is speaking to you to repent of your sins. To ask Jesus Christ to forgive you and to transform your life. If you desire to repent and ask Christ to forgive you and to be your Savior, this is the prayer of repentance. This is your prayer to Him, not to us, but to Him. And He's going to save you right now, right where you're at. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.